Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Got a great show in store for you. Hopefully you'll learn something about yet another conservation group out there that uh, deserves our support uh, in one way or another, but we'll also do some other things, so hang loose. First off, Ted Koch, the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership, will be talking to us about all things grouse. Yeah, prairie grouse, forest grouse, even those uh, ptarmigan up there way in the cold stuff. Well, it's cold enough down here, but we'll... we'll We'll skip that subject for now. So we'll learn all about what this organization does and why they do it and why we need yet one more group like this out there. So that's the prime consideration all coming up today. Uh, We're uh, going to my four favorite states in our public access road trip segment. I'll explain just one reason why I love each of those states. So if you're looking for a place to go, Get your pencils and paper ready. And from our Upland Nation survey, you did take the survey, right? Uh, What you want to learn more about, what you want to do better, you'll be amazed at the coincidence there. But um, all of that coming up on the Upland Nation podcast. First off, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for so many things. In fact, I was just doing a little exercise in a writing project and thinking about all of those things so it would be good to bring it up here as well uh yeah yeah just take a moment and and consider it and and then of course hopefully you got the hall pass on a friday uh black friday for some people for others it's just a day off to go hunting which is way better (laughs) there's so many weird black friday sales that start before black friday now I, i just it just doesn't make any sense to me, but selling doesn't anyway. But that's my problem, not yours. We'll take a look at some of your comments here, uh, how you're doing these days. Lance Larson, I am always intensely jealous of you. Number one, you got a five-month-old uh, Weimaraner puppy, Z. And I asked on the social media how your last hunt went. Well, Z actually swooped in and backed old Zane for a few seconds before, well, doing what puppies do. Everything was wonderful, nose full of quail, gave chase, and the thing I'm most jealous of, Zane, a 60-degree Arizona morning. Yeah. It's currently 20 here and falling. Oh, did I mention the frozen fog? Well, David Johnson probably put up with about the same thing. He said his last hunt was windy and cold. The picture I have along with that Facebook post, by the way, is my dog digging under a big boulder looking for a dead chucker. Well, 12-year-old Buster kind of looks ahead. Maybe he's looking for the next bird. I don't know. But he's there providing moral support and technical advice. Uh, you can bet on that. 12-year-old Labrador. Speaking of 12-year-old Labradors, David Gilbertson, I never put two and two together. Your old lab keeper is the same age as my buddy's old lab buster. He had a lot of miles on that last hunt. That looks a little familiar out there, although I'm glad to see the grass is growing a little bit higher this year out there. And Matt Templeton first Iowa hunt walked this is uh, I mean this is a poster boy Matt Templeton is a poster boy for public access he says first hunt in Iowa walked into a public land spot and shot a rooster 
soon thereafter. What is it? Is it a day for yellow labs? Here's another one, Matt. So you, you have good taste. That's for sure. Well, I love to hear how you're doing out there. I'm doing fine, thank you. Spending a lot of time in southeast Oregon and northwest Nevada and loving the heck out of it. Every time I go there, I wish I could move there. But uh, until there's a Nordstrom down there, the rest of the household ain't gonna do it. So uh, anyway, keep up the good work, everybody. We're made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products. You know, let me say that again, Sage and Breaker Dot com. Also, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Choke Tubes, and yes, the FurFeathersFriends.com initiative is still alive and well. Now it's up to you. So learn more about why taking somebody hunting and showing off your dog is the best way to turn them into a fellow conservationist. Well, maybe you're already looking at plans for next year, I am, or maybe later this season, and you're looking for someplace new to go. Um, wrote a piece a while back that I, I you know, I, I dug up for some, oh, because I'm waiting to get paid on it. But anyway, uh, dug it up and looked at it again and was reminded of four great public access of states that I love. That I guess that's why I love them right there. Thought I'd share them with you. If you're if you're just kind of at the very top, fill in the top end of the funnel with as many great ideas as you can for your next big trip. Here's my list. Nevada. Not just because it's close, and close by close I mean a five-hour drive. Uh, they have a nice long season extends into the first or maybe even sometimes the second weekend in February. And their license for non-residents is relatively cheap. I think I spend about 100 bucks a year for that license. The joy of it is it's a fishing license, too. Yeah, and I do take advantage of that. If you're a fly angler, you probably read a couple of my stories about Nevada fishing. Montana, way up there on the list. These are in no particular order. And by the way, yes, I'm not going to tell you it's Oregon. That's like picking your favorite child, I'm told. And Oregon is, of course, right in there. Montana, though, a variety of birds and a great walk-in program. I've talked about this before. That walk-in program in Montana is entrepreneurial-based. In other words, landowners, uh, you sign up when you get to the spot. You hunt it, they know you hunted it because you had to sign in. Now, if it's crappy habitat, bad management, you're not going to come back and they're not going to get paid. Yeah, they only get paid when you sign in and go hunting. Kansas has a new, well, relatively new walk-in hunting access program, and it's pretty well managed. I know I've spent time with those guys. The joys of Kansas... When you buy a non-resident license, it's good for 365 days. So go late one season, go early the next season. Woohoo! As you can uh, understand, when you look at the map, it's a little bit farther south, so you got a little bit longer, warmer season at the end of it. And a four pheasant limit. I mean, how can you beat that? And finally, number four on my list, not counting my home state, South Dakota. Need I say more? A bad year in South Dakota is better than a good year everywhere else put together. Hey, travel safe. Maybe I'll see you in one of those places. I'm there quite frequently.
and hopefully you will be too. We're brought to you in part by Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting Schools Pro Shop. Lots of great accessories there from gun care products to, um, well, let's talk about the guns too. I mean, uh, the whole Megillah is available at midvalleyclays.com. Take a look at their current inventory, especially if you're looking for one of those hard-to-find brownings out there. Dave Fiedler has a great relationship with the factory. Yeah, one of those kind of uh, uh, intimate relationships that means he has an in for some of those harder-to-find models, including the Featherlight versions of the Satori Double Gun, the oldest model line that Browning carries. But there's also several versions of autoloaders for those of you who are so inclined, and they also have some pump guns for those of you who are really old school. So check out the entire inventory from guns to gun care, shooting glasses to ear protection. It's all at midvalleyclays.com. And True Lock Chokes, they are the simplest way to improve your shooting. Take my words for it. It helped me and it might help you as well. A good, even shotgun pattern matched to your gun and to your ammo is the best way to hit one more bird on every trip great engineering great materials and then incredible design it's all at truelockchokes.com t-r-u-l-o-c-k chokes.com learn something about how patterning is one of the most educational aspects of learning how to shoot better and then take advantage of some of the offers they have everything from free choke tube case to a free shipping offer to a 10 percent discount if you buy three or more choke tubes check out all the details at truelockchokes.com well in our ongoing uh series of um I guess I'll call it uh, conservation leaders and our chances to learn more about the organizations that they are affiliated with. I'm welcoming Ted Cook to the show. He's the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership. Ted has uh, you know, worked for basically an entire career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in particular in the last part of his last life. He worked pretty hard on sage grouse and lesser prairie chicken. We'll talk more about that and what's going on in that world. Became the executive director of the North American Grouse Partnership in 2019. Good to have you back on the Upland Nation podcast, Ted. Thanks for joining me. Scott, thanks for having me back. You know, uh, we were talking off mic about your recent fishing exploits, but then you said you you it was really a cast and blast. Tell me all yeah. about this because that is a stream I've never thought about for something like that. Yeah, so Southwark Snake River, Eastern Idaho, it's uh, uh, a pretty good backcountry experience if you're into that, which I am very much. Um, uh, and we do it very late in the year because uh, there's less people. It's it's quite cold, but Water comes out of the bottom of Palisades Reservoir, about two-hour drive downstream from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, and so the cutthroat trout rise to dry flies very late into the fall, and uh, there's also big browns spawning. And so uh, we had a great time uh, catching uh, Snake River fine spot cutthroat up to 16 inches or so, and then some cutthroat rainbow hybrids. And then uh, I managed to get a 22-inch uh, brown to take my 
size 12 gold ribbed hairs here and uh that was awesome yes uh, but uh <laughs> I, I took my shotgun along as well and uh i missed two ducks the ducks uh had read the script and knew that hunting season was on so <laughs> there weren't many and where they were they were very skittish in fact i had to set it day one i i jumped them from too far away so day two i made a loop we, we stayed in the same camp a couple nights each and so day two, I made a loop around and sent my buddy down to flush them, and they came right overhead. Unfortunately, I screwed up and made it so that they flew. Uh, the, the sun was immediately behind them, and so I had to wait for them going away, and I made a bad shot. But uh, anyway, I went up a, a tributary stream, and I had a funny – I was trying to jump more ducks, and uh, I got to this – there were a bunch of little spring seeps coming into this small trip, and I got right to the head of the spring steep, and there's seep, and there's this explosion from a tight – group of dead branches and it was a rough grouse nice and uh, yeah and and it landed just 20 yards away and so i looped around and i don't know you tell me if you ever had this experience it was pretty amazing but you know I, i've learned that when when grouse do that or upland birds do that and go in you know a lot of times i didn't have my dog with me right because it was five days of mainly fishing but yeah so i looped around about where i saw the bird go into the tall grass and i just stood there knowing that if i stood there long enough i'd probably flush it and uh, sure enough, it jumped out like two yards under my feet. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I had my gun at the ready, but I had to uh, swing quick, quick and uh, pull the trigger quick. And uh, it was about only about eight yards out, banking away. And bam, there was just this burst of feathers in the air. And I thought I saw this bird go down into the, you know, right, like it was falling down, right? <laughs> so, so now I'm just standing there waiting and looking. And uh, all of a sudden, like about four feet off the ground on top of this pile of brush, the bird stands up. And uh, I'm like, man, how did I hit it that close and create that kind of a cloud of feathers and not just kill it? And it looked completely alert, right? So I line up and, you know, aim at its head and bam, it's dead. Turns out as it went away from me and banked to the right, you know, it showed me its back with its left wing up and I completely took off the left wing. <laughs> yeah, it almost sounds on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 and I, it, it was so clean that I, there were no pellets in the back. The wing was completely, because at eight yards, you know, <laughs> your shot pattern's pretty tight, right? And, and the bird, you know, I was looked just as alive as could be. It was really just a funny, uh, funny shot sequence. But anyway, yeah, so... Uh, so there was a, not much blasting, a lot more casting, but it was still a bit fun to be able to do a little it. waterfowl in Upland. Oh, yeah, I, especially, you know, both. Um, by the way, that duck story with the sun behind them, that's my story. So yeah. you know, quit, quit stealing my yeah. my excuses. <laughs> it, it was, I felt like such a dummy. I, I orchestrated this whole thing. My buddy called <laughs> me out, and I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the last time he's going to be your bird dog. Yeah, <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, you you mentioned that, and and I I what did I, bring, I brought this up in my newsletter a week or so ago. Um, ha, have you ever noticed? And I don't know. Was there? Doesn't sound like there was any snow on the ground where you were. Oh yeah, there was, there was. a couple inches. Okay, yeah. all right. Because I uh, the valley quail out where I hunt in really cold snowy weather will will do exactly what your grouse did stand there until they think you figured it out and then they'll fly yeah. and, and they won't fly more than 15 20 yards then they drop hmm. right down into something else and you know if you had a spaniel you could just chase 
chase those birds all day until you actually hit one. Because right. Or you feel bad putting them up so many times. <laughs> well, and I thought about I, that's exactly what that. I thought about. I thought, you know, how much pressure do you want to put on a little bird, especially a little bird like that? Yeah. When yeah. it's cold and uh, and f- f- feed is at a premium. Yeah, it does have an impact. I mean, you're, you're a biologist. You know, that's a lot of energy to expend. That's right. And the energy and stress. And I know I've more than once shot so poorly that I finally had to give them a break. Like, okay, you won. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, here's, here's, a, here's a dilemma for a guy who's studied sage grouse, lesser prairie chickens, and who knows what else over the years in the way of things we can shoot at. Um, do, what do you think about when you're actually going out there trying to kill those critters, you know, on your day off? Yeah. No, great question. Um, here's the deal. Hunters are this nation's foremost conservationists if only by monetary value provided mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thank goodness through the Pittman robertson act which is a tax on hunting and hunting gear and ammunition and guns uh and through all of our memberships and all of our various hunting organizations and our personal philanthropies and our generous time that we donate uh, to improve wildlife habitat and access mm-hmm. hunters do more to conserve wildlife than anyone else so when it comes time to think about what I would almost, well, the unthinkable is extinction, but the near unthinkable is a listing of a species under the Endangered Species Act. When it's a when it's a uh, bird that you can hunt for, like a sage grouse, which mm. has been considered for listing for some time, or lesser prairie chickens, which are on the cusp of being listed under the Endangered Species Act, it is the opposite of the fault of the hunter. The hunter has uh, done a great deal that has helped that bird avoid listing for so long. And the reason these birds get listed are for other reasons, and it's always habitat loss. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm a big believer. I actually wrote a magazine article on that topic a while back and and uh, and, and actually learned something, uh, uh, understood much of that, but not in the way that, uh, that I do now. That's for darn sure. Um, so if you're not uh, if you're not chasing uh, ducks that you miss and grouse that you hit but didn't think you did, what else are you going to be hunting for? <laughs> well, my uh, my primary passion is bow hunting elk. Ah, that's fascinating uh, because you're. A, I mean, in a lot of ways, people would kill to live where you live, so you could do that. Are you are you doing that mainly in in Idaho then? Yes, uh, I did move around towards the end of my career to Nevada and okay. uh, New Mexico, and I chased elk once in Nevada, didn't get one in New Mexico. I never drew a tag because yeah. they have a, a system yeah. that's heavily biased towards rich people. Um, <laughs> right? But, I mean, it's true. In most states, you know, tags uh, are given out, you know, uh, equitably to most hunters and primarily residents. But in New Mexico, they sell like 60% of their elk tags to the highest bidder so yeah. through, through private landowners. It's an egregious system. But So I ne- anyway, I never drew a tag in New Mexico. So yes, Idaho's mainly where I do it. Um, if you're going to hunt birds, um, again, you're in a hotbed to a great degree. You drive heck an hour anywhere out of uh, out of your hometown and and you're into chucker country for example and and valley quail to a large degree as well you ever chase any of those birds oh yeah uh quail down by the river snake river along with ducks and then uh chuckers for sure in uh you know southwest idaho eastern oregon and northern nevada i've got some buddies who are hardcore and so they take me out and uh 
as they say about trucker hunting, right? I, your readers know this joke, but uh, the first time you do it for fun, the next every time after is for revenge. <laughs> yes, so. and I promise I'll never use that in another magazine story, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a cliche thing, but it's so true for those upland hunters who don't know. So. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that area down there that you were talking about, I, I, I actually drove through some of that country for the first time on my way to, of all places, South Dakota a couple months ago. And... Uh, and realize I'd never done any hunting out there that out out there east of the Jordan Valley country, and so now I'm going to have to spend a season exploring that as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's all good country. It's got sage grouse in the right places, you know, up higher mm-hmm. than truckers mm-hmm. where there's cheat grass. Um, so yeah, lots of good upland bird opportunities there. Cool. Well, that's uh, that's enough inspiration for me right there. Let's talk a little bit about the North American Grouse Partnership. You know, I've watched you guys over the year. I've met to talk with people at various conventions and conferences of one sort or another. You guys seem to have, uh, I want to say, grown your bailiwick, for lack of a better term. Tell me, uh, give us the story on the North American Grouse Partnership. Well, it's really interesting. We, we refer to ourselves as a scienced based uh, advocacy group and um, we really are born of science so I don't know if any of your listeners know the name Tom Cade Dr. Tom Cade he was a professor at Cornell who started a group called the Peregrine Fund oh yeah 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 and so uh, then the Peregrine Fund moved to Boise Idaho and uh, started the World Center for Birds of Prey which Mm -hmm. to this day exists Mm -hmm. in Boise a wonderful resource Uh, Boise State University has a raptor research uh, master specialty program and so really we're the epicenter of of raptors here the snake river canyon has the highest nesting density of raptors of any place in north america it's really a a feature of idaho and southwest idaho in particular so uh anyway so the the uh peregrine fund was instrumental in uh working with the u.s fish and wildlife service to recover peregrine falcons from near extinction and in 1990 they were delisted under the Endangered Species Act. Peregrine falcons yeah. are recovered and delisted just like bald eagles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's a big uh, celebration in 1990. The Secretary of the Interior came out. And the next day, after peregrine falcons were delisted under the Endangered Species Act, Tom Cade and a group of falconers, whose passion is prairie grouse, by the way. If, yeah. you, if you meet a falconer in the West, mm-hmm. prairie grouse are their top prey uh, species to pursue. Uh, and they met because they saw the writing on the wall in 1990 that prairie grouse were threatened, you know, sage grouse, which, you know, have been on the on the list of things to worry about for listing on the Endangered Species Act for more than a decade now, and lesser prairie chickens, which are on the cusp. Um, you know, Atwater's prairie chickens in Texas are functionally extinct in the wild. Yeah. And then heath hens back east, which are the eastern prairie chicken, went extinct a century ago. So prairie grouse, uh, the reason is they need large landscapes and large enough populations to form a social group and uh and prairies are not often thought of as you know beautiful wilderness areas and so we do bad things to them and prairie grouse pay the price so in 1990 this group of falconers and scientists and conservation leaders and uh, raptor biologists said let's form the north american grouse partnership and so we've been around for 22 years now we include all 12 North American grouse species, including things like ptarmigan, mm-hmm. which you might not think of. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really, we're, we're a small but mighty organization, and we really focus our energy primarily on the four remaining prairie grouse species. Well, so you, lesser prairie, there you go. Sorry. 
Yeah. Delineathols, yeah. Yeah. Uh, lesser prairie chickens, which are the most imperiled, sage grouse, which are next most imperiled, and then greater prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse, which, while not imperiled, are in decline. So okay. those four species are really where we focus. In, in the lesser, um, over the years, we were making a TV show in Kansas uh, quite a while back, and it was the, even back then they were talking about maybe literally cutting off the season forever, yeah. day, days after we were scheduled to leave. So we actually did a hunt. Um, never saw a you. single bird, but, but at least we tried. Uh, but yeah. uh, So they've been in, in trouble for quite a while, it sounds like. That's right. It's the southwestern Great Plains. And, you know, when... Um, Native Americans uh, dominated the landscape, and our first prairie settlers moved through. Um, you know, it was a sea of grass, an endless sea of grass, uh, and they fed themselves on lesser prairie chickens. And uh, our uh, progenitors, those who came before us, would never have dreamed of the idea that all that would be left one day was postage stamp pieces of prairies and an endangered species. Yeah. But that's where we are today. Uh, despite the best efforts of hunters to try to push back against that and protect habitat and certainly protect populations. Well, it's kind of hard to argue against a, uh, you know, a, a tractor pulling a disker and something like that. And, and it, it sounds like to a great degree, civilization has basically taken that habitat. Am I, am I on the right track? That's right. It's uh, in its conversion to, uh, you know, row crop ag, like you say, and, uh, uh, woody vegetation encroachment, so oh. junipers, or as they call them, their cedars, are really yeah. taking a lot of it. But those two are the main threats. Yeah, um, and and much much the same, or maybe you're talking about sage grouse as well in that regard, because out here in the, in the way way west, it is it's all about junipers uh, and uh, and the problems they cause. Had an interesting yeah. observation. My wife and I were walking around in a sea of juniper not not a week ago, and she said. Ah, these blah 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 invasive species and i said well they're not invasive they just have taken over based on some other environmental factors am i am yeah. i close on that yes and this is really important let's talk about sagebrush and sagebrush ecosystems and sage grouse habitat so sage grouse are sagebrush dependent they have mm -hmm. to have it and again who would have dreamed even 40 or 50, well, I tell you one person who would, but let's say, <laughs> let's, let's say uh, 90 years ago, who would have dreamed that uh, the sagebrush sea would one day be so imperiled that we would list the most iconic sagebrush species, that being the sage grouse, under the Endangered Species Act, right? I mean, like, how could that possibly occur? Well, here's how it happened. Um, cheatgrass. Uh -huh. uh, that's the primary threat by far. So cheatgrass is an annual grass that's... Uh, uh, not native to North America, it came to us from um, Asia. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, if we, if your listeners know the name Aldo Leopold, mm -hmm. uh, one of our famous, uh, most famous uh, conservationists, he wrote a book published posthumously in 1949 called A Sand County Almanac. And in there, believe it or not, he has a chapter called Cheat Takes Over. Yeah. And he talks about the threat that he sees cheatgrass posing to the West, but it's, you know, particularly sagebrush ecosystems. And so, so today, a lot of times, uh, folks uh, see a bunch of sagebrush go up in flames, and they say, "Oh, fire is threatening sagebrush ecosystems." Yeah. But you have to ask yourself: Hasn't fire always been present in sagebrush ecosystems? 
And the answer, of course, is yes. And in fact, fire was a force for good for sagebrush because why? It would burn juniper. That's the way it used to work. But then we humans introduced this invasive annual grass, cheatgrass, and other invasive annual grasses like Medusa head and others. Mm. But, but cheatgrass is the main one, right? So we, we introduce cheatgrass, and then what Leopold writes about is um, cheatgrass slowly takes over the understory of sagebrush ecosystems when those ecosystems are overgrazed, yeah. which has been a big problem for you know most of the last century and still in some places today. But So what happens is you overgraze, you eat the native bunch grasses, well, the cheatgrass gets a toehold, and then it gets a foothold, and then it grows up underneath the sagebrush, and then you get fire, and bam, cheatgrass is fire adapted, and it dominates that site. Yeah, and, and it burns really hot too. So yeah, that, uh, and it takes all the sagebrush out yeah. at once. That's exactly right. It takes all the sagebrush out, and it beats everything else coming back, and it becomes a cheatgrass monoculture. So is the threat fire, or is the threat cheatgrass? Yeah. Well, if you ask the sagebrush ecosystem. It, they would say the threat is cheatgrass and that they miss having fire pushing back that woody vegetation. I got to gotta tell you a funny, uh, a sad funny story, but number one, I live right where that's happening. We've had two big fires in the last 40 years and they're, uh, and, and they have created a cheatgrass monoculture to a large degree, uh, right. except for that's the, right. except for the robust and resilient freaking junipers. But, yeah. uh, <clears throat> So uh, I have an acquaintance who uh, we uh, we respectfully disagree on any number of issues, but this person um, is doing sage grouse research and, and is is telling all of us the same thing you just told us in 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 many ways, and yet she is the most fanatic chucker hunter uh, I've ever yes. met. Isn't this ironic? Yeah, go yeah, ahead. and you know why? But you, yeah, how, yeah because. We all tell everybody, you want to find chuckers, find cheatgrass, because they eat it all. They'll even eat burnt cheatgrass seeds. I killed a couple birds in a fire zone last year. that Their crops were full of toasted cheatgrass seeds. Interesting. I wonder how they taste. I I almost thought about that, but knowing where it had been before I'd taken it out of the crop, I wasn't going to try it. But... uh, so, so there's this dilemma, and, and you scientists, to a great degree, face these kind of challenges every day. How, you know, what, like I said, sometimes you're out there killing the stuff that you're trying to save, and I understand all that, but I just find there, there's irony in her doing that and then advocating so hard for sage grouse and then out there doing this, the cheatgrass, benefiting from cheatgrass too. That's right, and this... This really points, let, let's go back to the Endangered Species Act, right? People will say, well, who really cares about a yeah. grass or a bug or a flower? Well, the purpose of the Endangered Species Act is to conserve the ecosystems upon which species depend. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I say the ecosystems upon which we and all other species depend. And so, uh, you know, with that in mind, we should all care about endangered species, and it's true, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, just a little setup here. Uh, you know, my South Fork Snake River fishing trip uh, years ago, really smart biologists put a bunch of rainbow trout in the South Fork Snake River uh-huh. that immediately began to hybridize with the uh, Snake River fine spot cutthroat trout that's native to the snake. Yeah. And uh, that nearly imperiled the Snake River fine spot. Well, the state fish and game agency wisely, in my opinion, uh, started a campaign 
to uh, eradicate rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty soon the outfitters and guides push back and say, hey, our clients don't care. They want to catch fish, whether it's a Snake River fine spot or rainbow. So now there's this compromise. And if you fish that river, um, you'll catch Snake River fine spot, but then you'll catch hybrids. Well, then fast forward to cheatgrass and chuckers, sage grouse. It's the same equation, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, here we've polluted sagebrush ecosystems with cheatgrass, and we're rapidly losing the sagebrush ecosystems and sage grouse with it. But we also polluted these ecosystems with chucker that are not native either. But you know what? Chucker and cheatgrass evolved together over in Asia. Mm-hmm. So chucker do great with cheatgrass. Yes. <laughs> and, and so the way I think about that, Scott, honestly, is um, it's all okay. I mean, we're never going to get rid of all the cheatgrass, um, so there's always going to be habitat for chuckers. Hopefully, we can stop the decline of sagebrush ecosystems so we get to hunt sage grouse and chuckers, and, and, and that's okay. You know, we don't have to think of it as an all or nothing. We don't have to get rid of all the yeah. cheatgrass and all yeah. the chuckers, and we, don't, we certainly don't want to lose all the sagebrush and sage grouse. So um, I, I think, I don't know, what do you think of that? No, I, uh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. It's absolutely right. I've got a piece pending for um, another magazine that basically um, advocates for uh, pulling the plug, giving up on some places sometimes because yeah. they're beyond hope. Yeah, and, 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 I would, and I would prefer to not say giving up, but um, readjusting there you our go. goals yeah. to share um yeah, to, to create a variety of outcomes that meet different people's yeah. needs. At the, at the end of the day, we're going to do what's important to us. So, yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, that's absolutely right, and, I, and I'm all for it. And, and you bring up something that I, I – only in the last couple of years I've been cognizant of, of more and more of this happening. Maybe there was a memo circulated. But now when you learn more about a particular wildlife refuge, you're learning that it was created for that critter or that critter, or maybe two or three critters. But quite often, as you said, we're trying to conserve ground for a very specific purpose. And that never struck me. And I don't know if, uh, if, if the, uh, the, the, the messaging has changed or what, but uh, it seems to make a lot more sense now than it used to. Uh, you mean focused conservation efforts around a yeah. species or habitat type? That kind yes, of thing? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so so I'll say the refuge system started in that very same vein, mm-hmm. but the but the species in question was all waterfowl. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, so uh, we we really this, so the National Wildlife Refuge System started that way under President Theodore Roosevelt in 1906. Mm-hmm. and has really maintained that same approach through today. It, it's just that, you know, we're now down to the point where, you know, we've lost so much habitat of all kinds, particularly wetlands, especially wetlands. Gosh, 90% of wetlands in the U.S. are gone, I think. So that, because um, that's where refuge systems started, is protecting waterfowl and wetlands, right? So, mm-hmm. so now we're down to the, you know, as our list of endangered species grows, the refuge system is more and more positioned to preserve a refuge for this species or that. You're exactly right. But to me, it's part of the, the, of the trend that has been the refuge system for its entire history. And uh, it's a little bit sad that we're reduced to these emergency room actions of this uh-huh. protectors, you know, yeah. 500 acres over here because it's the last habitat for the species. That's really, you know, how can, how can we unwind the 90% loss of wetlands, you know, 
Um, and, and by the way, there's good news. We have stopped the loss of wetlands over the last several decades. Oh, great. Yeah, which uh, which is relevant. I can tell you a little story about that if you want. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, who who doesn't want to hear a success story? Yes. Well, I, well, I, I guess maybe I should give you a chance to back out now because it's in the context <laughs> of uh, threats to prairie ecosystems. But it, but it's a, it gives a good contrast if you want me to tell that. Story. Yeah, I do. Okay, so uh, uh, North American Grouse Partnership and others have been working to try to get Congress to pass. A, an act called the uh, North American Grasslands Conservation Act. Yep. Mm-hmm. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because it mimics the name of the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which was passed like, what, 30 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the justification for the North American Grasslands Conservation Act is that prairie ecosystems are the most threatened ecosystems on the continent which makes sense. You know, we call it flyover country. There's not much wilderness in Kansas, right? Or Iowa or whatever. Um, and so prairies are the most threatened ecosystem and grassland bird species as a group have declined 40%, which is more than any other group of birds on the continent. Wow. Now, do you know the only group of birds to have not declined over the last 50 years? Avian predators. No, uh, they've declined as well. Okay, Water, then. Waterfowl. Okay. Waterfowl, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you know why waterfowl have not declined over the last 50 years? No. The North American Wetlands Conservation Act. <laughs> All right, so when we tell <laughs> so this... It just goes to show you, you know, yeah, a lot it, of it's, it's, it's a forehead slap. That's right. And so when we talk to uh, congressional staffers and we say, we give them this information, prayers are most threatened, uh, grassland birds decline more than any others. The only group to not decline waterfowl. Why? Because we have a NACA and we need a NAGCA. <laughs> <laughs> North American Wetlands or North American Grasslands yeah. Conservation yeah. Act, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. But but it is great news that that we've done a good job with wetlands and with waterfowl. I mean, let's in other words, we've done it before. Let's do it again with grasslands and let's save prairie grass, uh, prairie grouse and uh, prairie habitats you know that's a, that's a good place to pause for a moment here but it is it is it is reminiscent of a discussion i had with one of your colleagues in the in the in the quail world a, a few weeks back and how they create models and test the models and then retest the models and then they say here's a model that actually works everybody should try this I yes. mean, we, this is just slightly more global in scope. So yes. ho- hold that thought. We're just getting started. We'll crawl out of that rabbit hole. And we'll head for another one. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. That's Ted Koch with the uh, North American Grouse Partnership. Ted, we'll be back to you in just a moment. But right now, let me remind everybody this scintillating discussion uh, that everybody should listen to at least three or four times according to Ted and I, uh, is brought to you in part by sageandbreaker.com. I got it right that time, sageandbreaker.com. Two dog names, great names, by the way. Fred Bohm's company has all sorts of great gun care products and all sorts of videos that you should watch if you want to take better care of your shotgun including their modifiable bore cleaning kit. This is one of those snaky-like things, but it's got a few bells and whistles, including a detachable brush. Everything is labeled so you're never confusing your 12-gauge cleaning with your 20-gauge cleaning stuff. Get on the mailing list, and you'll be notified of all the new products and the very rare sales that take place. 
It's all at sageandbreaker.com. Welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Scott Linden here. Ted Cook is on the other end of the line with the North American Grouse Partnership. If you want to learn more about them, Ted, check me on this, grousepartners.org. Is that where we go? That's right. Good. Well, thank you for um, for joining us. I am learning something every few moments here, and that's good, and I hope everybody else is as well. Um, you mentioned uh, you you were dogless on that last hunt. And I'm not going to call it a hunt. I'm going to call it a fishing trip with a little bit of hunting to make right. life better. What kind of dog you running these days? Uh, yellow lab. You and everybody else. I talked yeah. in the introduction about everybody's last hunting trip, and it seemed like three quarters of the critters I saw, besides dead birds, were yellow Labradors. Uh, yeah, we we had a black lab first, yellow lab, but we're a lab family. Right. Mm-hmm. So are you uh, shopping for a brown one right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it's funny. A friend uh, has turned me on to small Munsterlanders. So yes. That interests me. Do you know anything about them? I do. <laughs> what's, your, what's your verdict? I love them, and they're great dogs. I've never hunted with one. I've, I've, I've marshaled, gunned over, and uh, otherwise become involved in lots of NABD events of one sort or another with the smalls and the larges. And so of the two choices, I think that's probably a good one. Um, and there's a great and growing community out there for smalls. So, uh, so learn more about them and you might just enjoy the heck out of having a pointing dog instead of a flushing dog for a change. You, you'll, you'll, yeah. And she, and apparently, so I should specify that my friend who, uh, she and her husband are wind, a small Munsterlander. She's actually uh, Jody Provost, who's the communications director for the North American Grouse Partnership. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and they say they fetch ducks and water, too. Oh, heck yeah, the joy of all these versatile breeds, and I'm a big believer. I'm on my fifth German wire hair. Um, they, they will do a little bit of everything. Uh, they may not be as stylish as you know, as pointers in the field, and they may not be as aggressive as a Chesapeake Bay Retriever in the water, but they will do it all, and that's the joy of them. Plus, those, yeah. the smalls, are, are they're just so pretty. Yeah, and cute and cuddly. I, we, I fell in love with Jody's, so. I don't blame you, not one bit. Well, good luck on that. Keep us posted. So, so of, of all, you know, when you go to grousepartners.org, you can look at the entire list of, of a grouse in America, if you want to call it that. And I, and I keep forgetting about these. Why don't you just give us the, we've talked about some of them, but let, let's just touch on some of the less uh, recognized grouse and i say that with quotation marks because i never thought about some of them as grouse per se yeah so we're thinking maybe ptarmigan yeah uh, yeah yeah so uh my experience with ptarmigan is limited because thank goodness they're not yeah threatened or endangered but yeah. uh but for shooting a couple with my bow on a caribou hunt in alaska one time <laughs> <laughs> Which was great fun. Right? I bet. I, yeah. I, I do that with blues. Where I guess they're dusky grouse now in Idaho. Yeah. And spruce grouse. Uh, uh, I've uh, shot with my go with my bow while elk hunting. But uh, yeah, so ptarmigan, you know, are just super cool because um, they live in such harsh environments and they're beautiful in the fall. You know, they they can often they can change color summer to winter and be modeled in the fall. And uh, but they're a grouse just like anything else. So I, yeah. You know, I think if uh, 
You know, another very northern species is the sharp-tailed grouse. Yeah, and I do want to focus on them for a moment because you alluded to the fact that their their numbers are dropping. Yes, and, so and I'm you, uh, you know I'm a fanatic sharpie hunter. So okay, tell well, me more. Well, um, it's a simple function of if the most threatened ecosystem in North America mm-hmm. is prairies, mm-hmm. and prairie species are going to be in decline. And like I say, so there's. This study just put out last year called the, or earlier this year, I think, called the Three Billion Bird Study. And they tracked bird abundance by ecosystem over the last 50 years. And they can do this because of the awesome power of citizen science. Yeah. And you know how birders can be, right? Maybe your listeners are probably birders. Uh, they they won't that. admit it to me, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> because I know how birders can be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> There's, there's the casual birders like maybe you and me, and then yeah. there's the fanatics, which are not like you and me. But anyway, yeah. um, there's a, there's an app called iNaturalist where uh, amateur naturalists can submit their observations and it counts because uh, scientists mine that site for data, right? And so anyway, for birds, this has been available for many, I mean, not this app, but this community science effort has been going on for many decades. And so... Uh, uh, when scientists looked at the 50-year-long data set, they found that grassland birds declined more than any other group because of the loss of grassland habitat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where do we find sharptails and graders and lessers and sage-grouse count as prairie birds, too? We find them in prairies. So so it's, a, you know, it's just math. It's simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same fragmentation that lesser prairie chickens are up against is what uh, the challenges that are facing graders and sharpies as well, habitat loss. Uh, a lot of it from uh, row crop ag and tree encroachment, plus all the other threats. The biggest, one of the bigger threats that's emerging now is wind farms. Yeah. Because yeah. prairie grouse evolved without tall structures. And so you put up a power pole or you put up a, a wind turbine, and those grouse will say, see you later. And, it, and the taller the object, the further, the more of an impact it has. Take, take this another step, but let me add to that juniper trees. And thank you. I should have said that first. Uh, but but all of those vertical objects. That's right. That's right. And it's not always because they crash into the wind turbine blades. It's something no, else, no. isn't it? It's the, yes, the fear of avian predators. So prairie grouse's greatest predator are hawks and falcons. And uh, that's why they the prairie grouse love the open plains, because if you're a hawk or a falcon and you're going to catch a prairie grouse, you're going to have to do it on the wing. And that's expensive for a raptor to do. Mm-hmm. But you give a raptor a perch every, you know, 200 yards with a row of power poles or, you know, with juniper encroaching in various prairie habitats, and it becomes much easier for more raptors to catch more prairie grouse. You know, this is, um, the, I'm learning all sorts of things today. The, the Kind of the, you're putting fine points on a whole bunch of general generalities that I've had over the years. And I hope others are, are listening as carefully as I hope to be listening. But all of those things matter because ultimately somebody somewhere in a federal agency is going to decide, well, we probably ought to start working on endangered species status for that critter. Is that- Yeah, that that is true. But that's kind of like saying... You know, we should manage our health better so we don't end up in the emergency room, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Instead, we should manage our, manage our health better so we have a higher quality of life. Yeah. And so, for example, in my work on lesser prairie chickens, we recently 
organized a group that has chosen to call themselves the Lesser Prairie Chicken Landowner Alliance. And these are a bunch of rural landowners in Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, who are passionate about the health of their lands and their landscape. And they don't want to see it carved up and they don't want to see trees come in and they don't want to see wind farms and they want to keep it as grasslands. And they're, they're all ranchers. They all raise cattle. That's how they make their living. But they love wildlife, too. And so rather than saying to them, well, let's, you know, wait till lesser prairie chickens are threatened with a listing under the Endangered Species Act, we can instead say, hey, do you want to keep your prairies prairies? And their answer is not just yes, but heck yes. I'm, so, I'm, I'm hearing a model that's already been worked in that world. Am I yeah, not? Yeah. yeah, that's right. No, no, it's, it's landowners love the land as much as uh, hunters love wildlife and the habitats that they live in. And so the key in what the Rouse Partnership is doing is trying to merge those two worlds in a way that is going to work for the various agencies, state and federal, including the Fish and Wildlife Service, which I think is going to you know, list lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act any day now. Mm-hmm. They haven't already by the time your listeners call in. So, yeah, yeah. so it's a pleasure to work with these awesome conservation hero landowners to, to lead the way. And, and what we're doing is these landowners are going to tell the federal agencies what we need to do. They're, we're not going to wait for the federal agencies to tell these landowners. Got it. Here to tell the agent that's the, that's the difference. That's yeah. what we're working on. Now, now. isn't that the model that uh, is still being used to a great degree for sage grouse in in the West? Well, yeah, and so uh, let's see. So number one, sage grouse uh, much more sage grouse habitat is on public land than yeah. lesser less, less prairie chicken habitat uh. is ninety five percent private. Sage grouse is something like sixty percent public. But but for the for the portion that's private, yes, you're right, Scott. Same idea there. Yeah. yeah. So so what do they get out of it? Because this is, I mean, you know, I don't care what organization I'm talking to. It seems like there sure is a lot of habitat work of one sort or another going on on some rancher's property or some farmer's property, and not property that I can access. Why yes. why why and what do we get out of that? Great. So great point. Great question. There's actually an emerging program. I think there's already a program, but another program emerging under the USDA Farm Bill conservation title that Congress passes every five years to enhance uh, sportsman access on private lands. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 the end at the end of the day, if there ain't no lesser prairie chickens to hunt, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. And so. So we're we're really you know behind the curve with lesser prairie chickens. We're we're also behind the curve, but less so with sage grouse. And mm-hmm. plus, sage grouse are on public lands a lot. Um, but and, and we're getting close on sharpies and, and graders. So so uh, the idea here is, and, and these landowners support sportsmen, and they I mean they work closely with the grouse partnership, and we're all you know grouse killers like your listeners are. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us anyway. Noble um, ones. Let's put a preface in. Noble. noble. Well, well, but that's the thing. And, and your listeners know this as well as you do. We all, as hunters, want to give back. We were talking about chasing those quail until mm. you miss them so many times. You're like, as a responsible hunter, I need yeah. to stop this because yeah. I'm going to yeah. kill them without ever shooting them. And that's wrong. Well, same thing here. We know we are, we are passionate about conservation as hunters. We know grasslands are the most threatened ecosystem. We know we're, we've lost our chance to hunt lesser prairie chickens 20 plus years ago, and we're at risk of losing them off the face of the freaking planet. Yeah. So even though uh, right now working with these landowners, you know, hunting access and hunting is, is not 
in our foreseeable future, because first we have to at least stop the decline, if not reverse it. As conservationists and hunters, we're all in, well, uh, most of the ones I know are all in yeah. on not losing lesser prairie chickens and, and har- harboring the dream that maybe our children will one day be able to hunt them again. Well, and, and of course, that is everybody's goal i think i i don't i've never met anybody who would argue that i mean maybe that's a good way to put it but yeah so so how do you do it i mean tell us what's happening in that uh using the lesser prairie chicken lesser prairie chicken landowners alliance i think i got yeah. that right um yeah. what what is a what are the top three action items well let me just give an example because there's another yeah. good news story embedded in lesser prairie chickens okay so I hope I got this right, 80% or 60% of the remaining population of lesser prairie chickens is on uh, 30-year-old conservation reserve program lands in western Kansas. Huh. So conservation reserve program is a very important program under the farm bill. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they pay uh, farmers to not break that ground. And in fact, in this case, importantly, 30 years ago, they ask farmers to reseed that. What they do is they take it out of row crop yep. agriculture because it's marginal usually. And in, 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 in this case, they asked farmers to use native seed when they replanted it 30 years ago. And you know what? It worked great. Yeah. Yeah. So so my question to the agencies and our land, less ready chicken landowner lands question is, hey, can't we just do that again? We, you know, we already succeeded once with this species in western Kansas. Let's just do more of that. Yeah. So that's the simplest ask. Mm-hmm. Do more CRP, just like we did it 30 years ago. And everybody's trying hard to get that, uh, whatever they call that quota, that that uh, the amount of acres increased. Yes. That's, yes, that's exactly right, Scott. And so there's going to be a new farm bill next year in 2023, and I urge your listeners to pay attention and to advocate for support for the conservation title in the 2023 farm bill in go. Congress. Good. So uh, on the ground, though, let's, you know, so somebody's done that, or maybe it's not an appropriate place to just uh, to hand over some of their ground to, to CRP. Uh, are there other uh, boots on the ground initiatives that, that we should know about? Um, let's see. So uh, if you don't make it CRP, um, yes. I mean, what, one, one way landowners are incentivized to protect uh, habitat for native species like lesser prairie chickens is if they can sell access. Yeah. Uh, and then not only are there lesser prairie chickens here, but in most of these landscapes, there's pheasants down in the thick cover in the bottoms, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that landowners can, I mean, uh, hunters can offer their support to landowners in that regard. And and it may not, you know, be a difference maker for that landowner, but it, it may help them because all these landowners want to embrace conservation, there but you they go. can't afford to do it out of their own pockets. Yep. And here's the thing, Scott. All these farm bill programs are usually thought of as subsidies and quote-unquote free money on top of what the landowners are already making. But you know what? That's not true because it always costs the landowners money to participate in these programs. And in most cases, it costs the landowner more than they get in benefit under the farm bill. And, and this is the biggest thought thing that we need to change. We no longer should be thinking of giving landowners subsidies, right? Yeah. They provide all of these incredibly important ecosystem benefits like clean air, clean water, uh, healthy soils, healthy grasslands, wildlife habitat, carbon sequestration. 
and they deserve to be paid fair market value for providing those services to all Americans. And so the landowner, Lester Pritchett and Landowner Alliance and the Browse Partnership are really focused on turning this into a, a private market opportunity where the, all of the services the landowners provide, I mean, they, they grow beef and they can get paid commercially for beef. They can't get paid commercially for any of those other services. And so what we really want to do is use the Farm Bill to help generate these markets to provide opportunities for private companies uh, if they're trying to meet their environmental sustainability uh, goals uh, or if they're uh, charged with uh, having to mitigate for actions that right. impact yeah. Um, that they can go to these landowners and pay a fair market value and we can end this whole government support program thing and the idea of these as subsidies. They're, they can't be subsidies. It doesn't work currently. We've got to turn it into paying them what they deserve to providing these services to all Americans. You know, and I've advocated for that for, for decades. The, you know, the, the only great habitat comes uh, when there's some element of entrepreneurship involved as well. Amen. Uh, uh, you know, Amen. you you can talk about that as you know. We've got a million examples of that, and it's absolutely true. And, and you know, on the flip side of that, I was talking with somebody not three weeks ago. Blah 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 blah. And uh, in my CRP, I'm getting two hundred and fifty dollars an acre every year for this stuff, and I fell out of my chair. I mean, not because of what I was drinking, but because I was astounded, <laughs> and I might have. Because of that, I might misheard him, but I didn't want to go in any deeper into that one at the, that point. But, but you, you forget, There's the, we don't yet as a society assign a value to those things that you just delineated from clean air to wildlife habitat. There's no market value for those things quite yet. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, landowners, they don't want subsidies. Yeah. And, and they want to provide these values, sure. but they can't afford to do it out of their own pockets. No, they're, they're to one degree or another, we can argue this all day, they're capitalists. I mean, they got to right. feed their family. They got to make the mortgage payment. That cat, Caterpillar D9 didn't come to them free of charge. That's right. So um, all those things matter to them, and this is one way to do it. And I'll, I'll just say, one, I, I will only get to do this one more time at Pheasant Fest this year. I get to pull on the Howard Vincent's coat and say again, Howard, what you need to do is start buying all the corners and the fence rows at fair market value so that you can leave them the heck alone. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, uh, big ag has gotten better and better at using up those last little corners. Right. Yeah. And, so, uh, and it shows up, you know, loss of prairie habitat is the precise yeah. of the country. Um, two, two more things. Uh, first, the, the, the one that is imminent and, and top of mind for you. When, you. when you ring off with me, you're going to get a few minutes to relax, and then you'll be back on a conference call that may have some dramatic effects, and we will find out about those well after this uh, is recorded, uh, but probably between now and when it airs. Tell me a little bit about what's happening later today. Yeah, so um, lesser prairie chickens have become so threatened that the Fish and Wildlife Service first listed an, um, them under the Endangered Species Act in 2013. They have lost a lawsuit based on a technicality, and they were re-sued by environmental groups to list uh, lesser prairie chickens again. And the process has dragged on and on for years. Um, but uh, it's the, the Fish and Wildlife Service proposed to list lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act again, just uh, in June of 2021, 
they were due to make a final listing decision in June of 2022. They've missed that deadline, uh, and there's reasons for that. But uh, nonetheless, um, we anticipate an announcement very soon that they're going to finalize the listing of lesser prairie chickens under the Endangered Species Act, which will begin a new era in lesser prairie chicken uh, conservation. Now, uh, I know we're speculating, and, and a lot of water will go over the dam between now and when when this airs, but could the effort that you described earlier with the LPCLA, um, the Landowners uh, Alliance, could that have some impact on what ultimately happens and maybe forestalls a listing? Uh, so the listing has been, that's why the Fish and Wildlife Service lost the uh, the lawsuit in the mid 20 teens. Okay. It's because the state agencies promised to do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh-huh. And the judge said, well, let the state agencies do it. So the judge made the Fish and Wildlife Service delist chickens. Okay. And the state agencies have not come through. Ah, okay. Uh, they developed a mitigation program that's failed. And, All right. Uh, and, and so now here we are with even fewer chickens than we had 10 years ago, unfortunately. And so, but, but I don't think our quest should be to list or not list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Grouse Partnership is kind of uh, agnostic on listing or not listing. We want conservation. And it's clear that all that we have tried up until now, including state programs, including farm bill programs as are currently built, are not getting the job done. Yeah. So at this point, frankly, I welcome an Endangered Species Act listing because hopefully it will galvanize uh, the public's attention into support uh, landowners like those in the Lesser Prairie Chicken Landowner Alliance to finally pay them what they deserve to be paid to help us recover and delist Lesser Prairie Chickens so we can hunt them again. Okay, well, one that is not quite there yet and is a passion of mine and soon and maybe even more so is the sharp-tailed grouse. Um, I can't think of anybody better to help me with one hunting tip the next time I'm headed for central to eastern Montana looking for sharpies. Oh, Um, man. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, here's the guy who r- runs the grouse partnership come on man give yeah. me a give me a tip <laughs> i swear to god i don't have a lot of experience hunting but i've hunted them and my my only tip is enjoy because <laughs> because they were made for upland bird hunters weren't they scott i mean yeah they're, they're beautiful they're not the fastest grouse they hold pretty well uh, and there's enough of them. You can still chase them and not feel guilty shooting them, right? No, they're they're just a pleasure. Um, I, I guess you know the only real tip is find them, right? That's the uh, you got to make sure you get the the right habitat, which has to be a diversity of native grasses and an absence of tall structures and. And uh, well, it, 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 that's my thoughts. What's your tip? What do you what do you do when you look for them? Uh, hunt early in the season. That's a you, good one. Too. You you're a scientist. You know that they they flock up into these giant groups and they got a million eyes looking for people like us with shotguns. You know that's a great one because uh, the the other two reasons one early in the season they haven't quite figured out they're getting shot at and mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. there's more young birds which are more naive and easier to get right. Well, that's why the pro trainers are up in Saskatchewan all the time in the summer uh, because yeah. those young birds they they look at the dog and they don't know what it is and the dog looks at the bird and doesn't know what it is and everybody <laughs> everybody benefits. So the other one is and this is a biologist told me this years ago and it, it's it's so true. Um, you're wasting your time unless the grass is tall enough to bend in the wind that's a great one and i and let me give you another one that we use for lesser prairie chickens but i think applies to sharpies and graders as well um 
if you can only see 20% of a volleyball in the grass standing 12 feet away, 20% for the ball, 12 feet away. That's I, I, that's ideal cover for prairie grouse. I'll I'll be I'll put a volleyball in my vest. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I love I, it. That uh, is I hilarious. Can imagine it, but yeah, no, it's a, I think it's a really excellent layperson's way to measure quality prairie grouse habitat. There you go. Uh, you heard it here first. Uh, everybody will be buying a volleyball for Christmas. And, <laughs> and on that note, Ted Cook, I'm so glad we could talk again. This was so fun. I know we went, pardon the pun, deep into the weeds a few times, but it's important information that we now have at our fingertips. And I'm so glad you could kind of translate a lot of that for us. Thanks so much for, uh, for what you do as uh, the executive director at the North American Grouse Partnership. That is grousepartners.org for anybody who wants to learn more about all of this stuff. Uh, Ted, thank you. Have a great holiday season, and uh, we'll talk again down the road. Scott, thank you so much. It's a pleasure spending time with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, we've got a little bit more to cover here and uh, stuff that might be of interest to you. Speaking of issues and uh, ideas, that's what we do here at the Upland Nation podcast, including what you want to learn more about. You tell me every year, thank you, in that big Upland Nation index survey that I do. Uh, A lot of stuff, including what you want to learn more about. So that's coming up very soon. First, we're brought to you in part by Pointer Shotguns. Remember, they got a new website, pointershotguns.com. Pretty basic, but that's the way I like things. They say that their shotguns are a work of art at a price that's a thing of beauty, and I cannot argue that. Beyond all the usual suspects, you can get your gun in a number of Cerakoted colors, every type of gun including a little pump gun for um, various uses new side-by-side coming down the pipeline uh, semi-autos target guns of all sorts field guns of all sort hey and now at pointershotguns.com some of my videos and articles instructional stuff for you right there it's all at pointershotguns.com Well, if you haven't taken the survey yet, it's not too late. Please do. You got me an e- you got an email or two from me. Please do take the Upland Nation Index survey. Here are some fascinating observations that uh, that frankly drive just about everything I do here uh, in the Upland Nation, from content to locations for TV shows, uh, even the articles I write for magazines. So. Uh, Appreciate your help on that because here I am trying to give you information that you can use. And what do you want more information on? What do you want to learn to do better? Well, when that's the question, it's pretty much evenly split amongst the top ideas. The first is you want to be better dog trainers. Watch for more on that. Well, if you watch the videos at all, you know I'm doing some of that. We'll do more of that down the road. I just finished another book on that, so stand by. And then the other one, 60% of you, by the way, on each of these topics, 60% of the listeners, uh, the, the readers of the newsletter, 
They want to learn more about dog training. Okay, the others, finding new places to hunt. Working on that all the time, too. So are you. I will always be doing more of that for you, whether it's the road trip feature here or the articles we do, even entertaining the notion of uh, putting a little ebook together. So if you're interested in that, just drop me a note and tell me so, because I'll do it if enough of you ask for it. Finding new places to hunt, being a better dog trainer, those are your priorities, at least at this point in the preliminary results of the Upland Nation Index Survey. And frankly, they're my priorities as well. Maybe that's why we get along so well. And speaking of getting along, I, I sure appreciate your um, joining us. Thank you, Ted Koch of the North American Grouse Partnership for all that fascinating information and insights. Thank you to everybody who comments at our social platforms. Uh, it's always fun to see what you're doing and why you're doing it. If you left a rating or a review, thank you, because every one of those will put another listener right here every week. And thank you to our sponsors, Sage and Breaker, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, and True Lock Jokes. And if you are looking for any more information on any of these topics, don't forget, I've got the authority site already and waiting for you, findbirdhuntingspots.com. If I don't see you there, I'll see you here next week. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening.